0: Binge this season of The Passage now. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, I'm Richard McLean-Smith, creator of Unexplained. The following is an extract taken from my new book, which is available to buy in print and audiobook at bookstores and online, in Waterstones, Blackwells and Amazon amongst other outlets. The book will also be available to purchase in the US and Canada in fall 2019. I hope you enjoy. Chapter 10. Every story is a ghost story. The ghost holds a unique place in the world of the supernatural, as capable of scaring us senseless as they are of inflicting us with the deepest of melancholies. They also come in many forms the ghosts that we carry with us in our daily lives, memories of those we have loved and lost, or perhaps even wronged, thoughts that sit in the deepest parts of the psyche, straining to become manifest. But what are the apparitions that seem not to have been brought forth from the subconscious? Those that have no connection to the observer, but instead seem to be reaching out to us from a seemingly timeless space. For some, to witness a ghost particularly that of a relative, might bring a certain comfort, the reassuring glimpse of a life beyond death. Almost without exception, however, dating back to our earliest cultures from those of the Igbo in West Africa to the Bengali of South Asia, the sighting of a ghost was rarely something to celebrate. Commonly, the appearance of a ghost would speak of something unsettled, the result of a body not properly buried, perhaps, or one that had been lost at sea. Or it might be a sign that the cause of death was suspicious and required avenging. Failure to rectify the situation could condemn the ghost to an eternity of restlessness. For the ancient Sumerians, death was an act from which there was ordinarily no coming back. The souls of the dead left to dwell in Ker, the land of no return. It was a place where all men and women were equal, regardless of their actions in life, no matter how rich or poor a place where they would remain for the rest of eternity in dreary unlight, watched over by Erish Kigal, the dark queen of the netherworld. The oppressive conditions of Kerr were said to be alleviated for the dead if their surviving family continued to make offerings of food and drink once they were gone. Failure to do so would see the ghost of the deceased return to punish their callous relatives with misfortune and ill health. In ancient Japan... The appearance of a ghost, or Yuri, was especially ominous. Yuri was sometimes said to transform from souls, or Raycon, in fits of explosive emotion, often motivated by vengeance. Violent murder or suicide would almost always presage the arrival of a Yuri intent on retribution. Until the disturbance had been settled, they would be fated to haunt the living indefinitely. Yuri are traditionally portrayed as women with long black hair, wearing white burial robes with hands hanging loosely from the wrists, an image that fans of the character Sadako Yamamura might recognise from author Koji Suzuki's Petrifying Ringu series. Yamamura's portrayal as a traditional Yuri, with a penchant for climbing out of TVs and video monitors, has realised to devastating effect in Hideo Nakata's terrifying 1998 adaptation of the first book in the series, is, for me, the most nightmarish portrayal of a ghost in cinematic history. Often, a ghost or apparition is said to be inexorably linked to a specific location. For those of us living in the United Kingdom, there are many such ghosts, two of our tourist boards claiming the Great Tower of London and Edinburgh Castle as their respective countries' most haunted destinations. However, I have always found such a notion problematic, in a very literal sense at least, for reasons laid out with a great, mournful and affecting beauty in A Ghost Story. In this striking 2017 film, written and directed by David Lowry, the eponymous ghost of the title, having chosen to remain behind on earth, is fated to drift through time as all the world changes around him. Although Lowry slips the ghost back into his original corporeal timeline, I have always wondered where such a ghost might end up, were it not so easy to escape the seemingly ceaseless arrow of time. Just where might a ghost be left to haunt, tens of billions of years from now, when the planet has long since been obliterated by the sun? When it comes to the sheer terror of the supernatural, for me, there are few more disturbing notions than the poltergeist, malignant spirits of wrathful energy, dead set on singling you out for inexplicable, and therefore deeply frightening, reasons. Though some consider supposed poltergeist activity to be the result of the extrasensory projections of troubled teenage minds, it is surely in the portrayal as an active spirit that the notion is most potent. I have always felt a little haunted by this idea. Doubtless there are many of my generation whose first experiences of the fabled knocking ghost came through Toby Hooper's mesmeric 1982 film Poltergeist, which many forget was written by Steven Spielberg. Perhaps it is simply nostalgia that draws me back to this masterful movie, hypnotic in its alluring fusion of slick Hollywood with a less familiar place that seems to call out silently to us from somewhere between the frames. But there is something else. Although there is little telling which was cause and which effect, For as long as I can remember, since seeing this film, I have had a recurring, terrifying poltergeist nightmare, always occurring in that liminal, lucid space shortly before waking. It begins with me standing at the top of the stairs of an old childhood home, while friends or members of my family are gathered at the bottom. But as I walk down to join them, something has caught me in its grip, something of unfathomable malignance from which I know I cannot escape. As I kick and scream, it continues to pull me back further and further, and then I wake up. Every time it is the same. I understand this to be a common dream trope, and was once advised that the way to do away with it might be to try to turn around and face this unseen manifest fear. I've not yet been able to achieve this, though I'm sure there's a good lesson in there somewhere. So it always fills me with a particular sense of caution and no little excitement when I learn of new alleged poltergeist events, particularly ones that invoke the work of Nigel Neal, involving learned men and women on the hunt for ghosts. At 33 years old, Tony Cornell was by no means the most senior member of the Cambridge University Society for Psychical Research but he was certainly one of the more proactive, always on the lookout for a new site to investigate. Like most members of CUSPR, he was a proud rationalist with little time for superstition or spiritual nonsense, whose interest in the supposed paranormal and supernatural events began from a thoroughly sceptical point of view. He did, however, maintain a healthy fascination with the strange due to a peculiar event he had experienced ten years previously. As a young naval officer during the Second World War, Tony had been stationed in southern India, close to the Nilgiri Mountains, where he became enthralled by stories of the local fakir, holy men and women without any possessions or relations who are believed to possess mystical powers. It was said that a fakir could perform miracles, with many people travelling for miles to seek their wisdom and guidance. One such fakir, was said to be living in the hills not far from where Tony was billeted, and although thoroughly dubious, Tony was nonetheless intrigued enough to try to find the man in the hope of witnessing these miracles for himself. After a number of hours trekking through rolling, tree-capped hills across treacherous paths flanked by steep, jagged cliffs, Tony had made it to about 6,000 feet above sea level when he came across an old man in simple clothes standing at the end of a small plateau, as if he had been waiting for him. To the side of the plateau lay a steep drop into a gully, with a stream gushing through it. Without acknowledging the young Navy officer, the fakir asked what it was that Tony wanted. I hear you can perform miracles. You're too materialistic, but I'll give you what you want. There was a pause as the fakir thought for a moment. Tony smiled awkwardly, suddenly self-conscious at this clash of cultures. Look towards those hills, my son. Tony was not quite sure what to expect. He pointed towards some prominent peaks in the east. Uh, Those hills? The fakir gestured yes with a gentle nod of the head, and Tony duly turned back to inspect them. Do you see? Tony looked confused, scratching his head before turning back to the man. I'm sorry, I I don't. But the man wasn't there. Tony heard a shout from the far side of the stream. Well, my son, did that entertain you? Tony stood for a moment, trying to fathom how a 70-year-old man could have dropped into the gully and raced to the other side of the fast-flowing waters in only a matter of seconds. Smiling now to himself, he watched as the fakir slowly picked his way along the rocky bank before disappearing into the bush. Are you always taking care of your family? Do you often take care of others and not yourself? Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. You deserve it. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist to help you get back to feeling your best, to feeling like yourself again. With Teladoc... You can speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video. Therapy appointments are available seven days a week, from 7am to 9pm local time. If you feel overwhelmed sometimes, maybe you feel stressed or anxious, depressed or lonely, or you might be struggling with a personal or family issue, Teladoc can help. Teladoc is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change counsellors if needed, for free. Teladoc Therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's t-e-l-a-d-o-c dot com slash unexplained podcast. The Society of Psychical Research, of which Tony's CUSPR group was an affiliate, had been established in 1882, largely in response to a peculiar craze that had been gripping the nation which had its origins in a small wooden house in the tiny hamlet of Hydesville, New York. It was there that in 1848, two sisters, Kate and Margaret Fox, claimed to have made contact with the spirit of a dead man who had communicated with them through a series of knocks and bangs. In other words, they had allegedly made contact with a poltergeist, and in doing so had inadvertently created a movement that would come to be known as spiritualism. As news of the Fox sisters' incredible claims spread through the UK, it wasn't long before everybody, from scullery staff to Queen Victoria, were conducting seances in an attempt to communicate with the dead. As the movement grew in popularity throughout the world, so too did the stories of strange paranormal happenings that seemed suddenly to be breaking out everywhere. For those caught up in the scientific fervour of the Enlightenment Age, the emergence of such stories was a horrifying riposte to the increasingly rationalist and atheistic principles catalyzing academia at the time. However, although many in the scientific community dismissed paranormal claims out of hand, a small number of academics, led by Henry and Eleanor Sidgwick, William Barrett and Edmund Gurney, amongst others, decided instead to approach these varied problems without prejudice or prepossession of any kind in the same spirit of exact and unimpassioned inquiry which has enabled science to solve so many problems, once not less obscure nor less hotly debated. And so the SPR was born, the world's first Ghostbusters. The Cambridge branch of the Society had been founded in 1906 and 50 years later existed mostly as an organisation for like-minded people to get together and share stories regarding the latest papers and theories they had read. But sometimes, if they were lucky, the chance for something more hands on would crop up, like that which Tony brought to the group one evening in November 1957. The curious case had presented itself a few days earlier when a young journalist based out of Wisbeach, some 40 miles north of Cambridge, had contacted him. At the beginning of October, Anthony Wilmot, who worked for the Wisbeach Advertiser, had overheard a conversation about some mysterious goings-on at an old manor house known as Hanneth Hall, situated out in the Fens, not far from where he lived. The house, he would later discover, had been plagued by hauntings for years. Wilmot didn't care much for silly ghost stories, but after learning one of the current tenants was the local Labour candidate, Derek Page, he couldn't resist following up on the story. Having arranged to interview Derek and his wife Audrey, as well as Audrey's mother, Rose, who lived with the family, Wilmot had arrived with tongue firmly in cheek, only to find them in a state of some distress. For the next hour, he was treated to a variety of extraordinary tales, outlining their experiences since they had arrived from Cheshire two months previously. They had only been there a matter of days, as Audrey explained, when she was first awoken in the early hours of the morning by the sound of a very clear, and insistent tapping, that seemed to be coming from just outside her bedroom. Thinking she had only imagined it, she turned to go back to sleep, only for it to come again, this time a little louder. Sitting up in bed, knowing it couldn't have been Derek since he stayed in Ipswich during the week for work, she had assumed it was one of the children, or perhaps a mother who slept in the bedroom opposite. Yes? Hello? Hello? Audrey bolted upright and hurriedly switched on the bedside light. Hello? But there was no reply. Collecting herself, she stepped out of bed and made her way cautiously towards the door. With a trembling hand, she took hold of the handle and eased the door open a fraction, peering through the gap into the corridor beyond. There was nobody there. Ever since that night, the family had been hearing similar knocks and taps throughout the house. Audrey was certain that, on a separate occasion, she had heard footsteps descending the stairs, with a clearly defined shifting of weight from one foot to another. She had been alone in the house at the time. A few weeks later, Audrey's mother Rose had woken up after feeling a violent jolt against her bed, and not long after, Despite being partially deaf, she had been woken in the middle of the night by an inexplicably loud, crashing sound just outside the door, as if the door itself were being smashed in. Derek had not heard these noises himself and joked that it was probably the old Tories who used to own the house, turning in their graves at the thought of him living there. He did recount one rather strange story of his own, however. Not long after they'd moved in, His mother had travelled down from Manchester with a view to staying with the family for a few weeks. After a couple of nights sleeping in the spare bedroom, she began to experience a recurring set of bizarre and terrifying nightmares. A couple of times she had found herself floating out of her body and looking down at herself as she slept with the very vivid sense that something profoundly malignant was trying to pull her away and that if she didn't return to her body, she would never wake up. Other times she found herself trapped under the legs of a horse as it kicked violently at her face. After less than a week, having also started to hear the noises, she made a hasty retreat back to Manchester. Audrey and Rose told the young journalist that the knocking sounds had become worse over the last few weeks and that increasingly they seemed to be coming from one room. Located at the north end of the first floor, the room was assumed by the family to have been a bedroom at some point, owing to its size, but was currently being used for storage. Since unlike every other room in the property, it had never been rigged up to the mains, the pages were happy to keep it that way, and rarely had cause to go in there. After leaving Hannath Hall that afternoon, Wilmot determined to do some further digging of his own, and that as he explained to Tony over the phone a few weeks later, was when things started to get really interesting. The house, as he discovered, had been built sometime in the 16th century and was thought originally to have belonged to a Richard Sparrow, earning it the nickname Sparrow's Nest. Over the years it had been passed through a number of owners, gaining its current name after being purchased by Joseph Hannath in 1812. The house was sold again to George Williams in 1899, who elected to keep the name Hanneth Hall. Wilmot got in touch with the building's current owner, Hugh Williams, George's grandson, to find out more. Much to his surprise, Hugh and his family, who had lived in the house for 40 years before deciding to rent it out to Audrey and Derek, were more than familiar with the spooky goings-on there. Hugh went on to describe an incident a few years back involving his brother Peter who, while staying alone in the house, had witnessed a door handle turning of its own accord. Another time, Hugh's nieces had suffered vivid nightmares while sleeping in the now disused room at the far end of the property, and had also awakened one night to find a pair of blood-stained hands floating in the room with them. That wouldn't be the bedroom on the north side, would it, by any chance? Wilmot had asked. You mean the haunted bedroom? replied Hugh. As it turned out, Hugh's family had taken to calling it this on account of a morbid story they had heard about one of the previous owners. Long before the house had been wired for electricity, the haunted room had in fact been the sole master bedroom. As the story went, it was in this room that the wife of former owner, Joseph Hanneth, who bought the property from his father in 1812, had died young, The death had left Joseph so bereft he couldn't bear to release the body for burial, deciding instead to have it interred in an open coffin, which he kept at the end of the marital bed. For six weeks, an increasingly unhinged Joseph continued to order his servants to bring his wife three meals a day as her body steadily putrefied. Eventually, with the stench becoming unbearable, Joseph was brought to his senses just long enough to take the body into the front garden, where he is said to have buried it under a large horse chestnut tree. As Wilmot continued to explain over the phone to Tony, since the first article had been well received, and with Halloween drawing near, he approached Derek and Audrey about the possibility of spending a night in the house, with a view to publishing another article about it. Since the couple were eager to prove they weren't making anything up, they welcomed Wilmot joined this time by a senior colleague from the paper, as well as a local friend and his pet Labrador, Simba, back to Hannath Hall on 31st of October to conduct an investigation. Later that night, as the devil's hour approached, and with Audrey, Rose and the children fast asleep, Derek, Wilmot and his colleague took up positions on the landing, while the friend and Simba kept watch in the old master bedroom. Despite some initial nervous joshing, it hadn't taken long for a pervasive eeriness to descend. When from somewhere in the house, a clock struck twelve. Simba began to whimper mournfully. A noise was heard from inside a spare bedroom off to the side, but not one of the men had the courage to investigate. A moment later, they all sensed a significant drop in temperature followed by the smell of sandalwood that seemed to be sweeping back and forth along the corridor. Although little else occurred that evening, whether it had been the charge of the occasion or merely the atmosphere of the evocative old building, when the men finally called it a night at 2.30am, it was with the distinct impression that they had experienced something. All elements of Unexplained are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or on Twitter at UnexplainedPod. Now it's time to take care of yourself, to make time for you. Teladoc gives you access to a licensed therapist, to help you get back to feeling your best. Speak to a licensed therapist by phone or video anytime between 7am to 9pm local time, seven days a week. Teladoc therapy is available through most insurance or employers. Download the app or visit teladoc.com forward slash unexplained podcast today to get started. That's com slash unexplained podcast. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on Season 3 of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 7 Questions. Limitless Answers.